Father, you truly are a glorious and gracious, amazing Father, loving us when we are unlovable, demonstrating your loving kindness, your grace towards us when we are uh, obstinate and rebellious. Father, your word speaks such wisdom to our lives in this day and age. We desperately need it. So, Father, I pray that you bless our time in the word today, uh, that, Father, it would be added to our understanding, that, Lord, it would bring newfound conviction in wanting to serve you uh, because you truly are glorious and that we would desire to bring all glory to you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's, let's catch up real quick to where we are. We're talking about the necessity of having a common biblical thing that we're all about. We can tell everybody all day long we're all about Jesus. We can tell them we're all about the Bible. We can say we're all about salvation. And that sounds well, great, good, wonderful, fantastic. But if there's something that we need that motivates our lives, something to live by, something that you could put it in a sentence, and not just that, but you can put it in your pocket and take it with you and pull it out later to observe and appreciate Having gone through all the various mission statements that the church has had at some point to think about what the Bible calls the church to be and to have a wonderful conversation with Mr. Ken Crejean back there, we've settled upon this idea of loving people to life in Christ. Now, if you were here two weeks ago, and if you haven't, you can listen to it on the website, the Bible has an incredible amount of information about what it is to love people. And, pop quiz, how do we find that God loves people? Unconditionally. And agape love is an unconditional type of love. Last week, we are dealing with the whole life, L-I-F-E, capitalized. Why is it all in caps? Because if there's anything that lost people in this world need, they need life. Jesus already died for their sins. They don't need to pay God back. They don't need to promise to do better. They don't need to try to obey or make some sort of commitment. What they don't have is life, and it's the very thing that Jesus, by his death, offers to them. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but has what? Eternal eternal life, everlasting life. That is the message for the unsaved. So, our unconditional love needs to point in the direction of wanting lost people to come to faith in Christ. But that is not the only aspect of L-I-F-E. Today, for some of you, this may be a new concept. In fact, let's read the beginning of your paper. If you notice, I put a little warning, and I think that it's important. So at the top, the second aspect of life, that the believer would live a worthy life that will merit greatness in the coming kingdom of Christ. This is accomplished only. And I think that's important. That's the reason why I capitalized the word only. Excuse me. This is accomplished only by applying Scripture to our minds and actions. We know a lot. We are not lacking in Bible study. Our heads are constantly getting filled. 
But if it doesn't make a difference in how we live life and how we make decisions, it does not matter before the Lord. That's important. Now, warning. This teaching is not readily accepted by all believers. In fact, Jesus told a parable about it. When this teaching that we're getting ready to talk about goes out to people, either Satan swoops in and snatches it away so that they can't comprehend it, or it ends up falling among some rocks and it springs up for a moment, but then it dies out because it was not firmly rooted in what the Word had to say. Or there's a situation to where, yes, that sounds great. I want to move forward with that. That sounds amazing. But then the cares of the world, its riches, entertainment, all of those things come in and they choke it out and kill it. And then there are some who receive it and say, you know what, because it's true, I have to respond to it. There's not an option. And in doing so, we are told that we will produce 30 and 60 and 100 fold. That parable is not about going to heaven when you die and who receives the gospel. That parable is about the gospel of the kingdom. And the gospel of the kingdom of God is not the same thing as the gospel of the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Raise your hand if you're confused. Okay, ask a question, please. If you're confused, ask a question. Let's have an open dialogue here. Since Tom's presentation about pastor appreciation was so short. (laughs) No pictures. No pictures. No cake. No ice cream. We got time for questions. And it's not that I noticed any of that stuff. I just felt it was the Lord's provision for more questions. Do we understand that the gospel of the kingdom of God is not the same thing as the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ? Last week when we talked about life for eternal life, that message is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And that is a message to the unsaved. But the message to the believer is to keep the commands of Christ in order to have greatness in the coming kingdom. Not everyone will have the same recompense in the kingdom. We don't all come out equal. It doesn't happen that way. It doesn't work that way. Let's be honest. You don't even treat your kids that way. Right? You got the one responsible kid, good student, does all those things, and you can trust him with anything. Then you got that one kid where you're like, hmm, right? Don't know if I trust him too much. Can't throw him that far, so there's a good measurement, right? And then for some reason, the word felon pops across your head. I don't know, right? (laughs) We have those varying degrees. This teaching is not readily accepted by all believers. By and large, the Church of America has dismissed or remain ignorant to this teaching. However, it is replete throughout the New Testament with many Old Testament allusions and types showing the same. This immense failure to accurately handle the word of truth has led to the false teaching that works play some part in faith alone. Let me give you an example. Our friend over in the Twin Cities, John Piper just posted something recently on Twitter. That's the only social media I have. I don't do Facebook or Instagram or none of that other weird stuff. I just have Twitter. But in looking at that, he posted something on Desiring God that said, salvation is not by faith alone. It is by killing your sin. Now, you sit there for a second and you go, that's wrong. Exactly. But let's stop and let's ask the question. 
How did he get to that point? And what we find is, is because there is no correct biblical concept of the kingdom, and there is no correct biblical concept of rewards. That somebody takes the rewards passages and always looks at them through the glasses of, go to heaven when you die. Therefore, you have corrupted something that God has made amazingly beautiful and has done nothing but set his people up to attain the highest possible position of glory before him in eternity. Now see, here's the interesting thing. We are in a win-win situation here because we can actually discern the difference between justification passages and glorification passages. And everyone has a Bible, right? We're in an advantage. So, two passages I want to look at real quick because I want to show you something. John chapter 10, if you would please turn there. Gospel of John chapter 10. And then we're going to hit some parable form ideas. Watch Jesus explain these things. Now let me say, say something, okay? Number one, you're probably not going to agree with me if you're new to this, the first time you've ever heard this. So I encourage you to listen to the sermon again and then pray about it. If you still don't agree, excellent. Send me questions and let's talk it out. Uh, please, please point out where I'm wrong. I'm not above being wrong, okay? Being a pastor shows you in life that you're not above being wrong. So, John chapter 10, look at verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy, okay? Which we know the thief is who? Satan. I came that they may have life. We, we, we good with that? Yes, but notice what he says. He doesn't stop there. And have it abundantly or to keep on having it or to keep on having life and to have a surplus of life. Not just to have eternal life, I'm going to heaven when I die, but the fact that you would begin to experience that life now and that you would begin to build and work towards that life. But I thought salvation's not by works. Your justification is not by works. Your justification was given to you based on the work that Jesus has already accomplished. And all works done for him spring out of the same faith that you exercise when you responded to the gospel. You hear the gospel, you believe, you are now sealed with the Holy Spirit, and you are given eternal life as a gift. Instantaneous. However, the abundant life takes time. It is still knowing God's word. It is still responding in faith to God's word. But now it matters in how you live your life. Everybody got that? Now turn over seven chapters with me. John 17. And this is Jesus' prayer right before he's betrayed and arrested. But he says something very interesting at the beginning. And this is not in your notes if you want to write it in there. This is something I was thinking about and was like, yeah, we need to hit this real quick. Chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, 
that to all whom you have given him, and there he is talking about the disciples. That's who the context is here. If you compare John 6 with John 17, the Bible interprets itself. All that you have given him, he may give eternal life. Now watch this. This is eternal life. Here is what it is. Here is a definition that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, stop for a second. Weren't the disciples already saved people? So what does it mean here that they would know God and Jesus Christ? This speaks of having a deeper understanding, an intimacy with God, a fellowship, a communion attitude and relationship with God. There are too many people that think, well, since salvation is free and I believe I've punched my go to heaven free card or my get out of hell free card, if you're a Monopoly fan, pop, you punched it. And now I can do whatever I want because I have a ticket. And I'm here to tell you, you can do whatever you want and you will not lose your salvation. Because eternal life is based on Jesus' work, not yours. But you will suffer the consequences of your actions. Choices have consequences, not just in this life, but in the life to come. Who's confused? Some of us are. Question. Give me some questions. Go ahead. We're going to fill this out a little bit more, but go ahead. Notice I haven't told you everything yet because I'm baiting you. Go for it. Yes, Roxanne. Will there be sorrow and weeping in heaven? What do you think? Really? Then why would there come a point later on when there will be no more sorrow because God will wipe away every tear? I mean, the only people saved at that point are, or the only people around at that point will be saved people because evil's been done with. How about 1 Corinthians 3.15? We're going to turn there and look. 1 Corinthians 3.15. See, everybody's intrigued now. I, I, I told you it wasn't an easy teaching, and not everybody readily accepts it. It's a heck of a sermon to preach on Pastor Appreciation Day, isn't it? Yeah, we take it back. But here's the thing. Don't trust me. Don't trust anything I say. Trust the scriptures. See what they say. And I guarantee you if we can walk through the scriptures together, we won't have a problem. Let's start in verse 11 so that we get some context. 1 Corinthians 3, look at verse 11. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Would you agree? When we believe in Jesus, we all have the same foundation that is laid. In fact... Everybody, stomp your feet around a little bit. What are you you stomping on? A foundation. It was laid and it's got to be sound. If it's got a crack, if it's got a fault, if it's got anything, you will find that it crumbles. Jesus Christ is our solid foundation and that's where we all start. But look at verse 12. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's, what's the word, church? work. Now notice he's talking to Christians, people who are already saved. Each man's work 
will become evident. It will be made manifest. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed by fire. There is a day when our works will appear before the Lord and it will be revealed by fire. It will test our work. This is what is known as the judgment seat of Christ. It says here, it will show, uh, show it because it will be revealed by fire. And watch this. And the fire itself will test thee. And please underline this, highlight it. I don't know, put something there so you get it. We'll test the quality. That's the point. The quality of each man's work. Not the quantity. Busy doesn't mean you're getting stuff done. Busy means that you're just real good at being distracted. Quality. What has God called you to do and are you doing it faithfully? Quality work. Are you abiding by the rules that Scripture sets out for you? quality of each man's work. Now here's the two results. Verse 14, number one, if any man's work which he remains, he will receive a reward. After fire has tested it, if your work was of the gold, silver, precious stones quality, it remains there. If it has a showing after the testing of Jesus Christ himself, you will be rewarded richly for your faithful service. Remember, it's about quality. Verse 15, if any man's work is burned up, he will what? Suffer loss. Now, where's this taking place at? It's taking place before the throne of Christ himself in heaven after the rapture. Once we are raptured, what happens after that moment when our bodies are gathered up to meet our spirits in the air, we then come before the Lord and we are held accountable for how we lived our lives while being Christians on this earth. So notice, if our work is not of quality, if we didn't know what God had to say about it, if we didn't bother to search out his word, if we didn't bother to abide by it, and this is why loving people unconditionally is such an indispensable property in the Christian life that has to be there. Jesus talked about it a ton. And we have to embrace that mentality and understanding. This person will actually suffer loss before the Lord. Look what it says, though, just in case we're not saying, oh, well, they're going to hell. No, no, no. But he himself will be what? Saved, yet so as through fire. A Christian whose entire earthly life had been lived, being redeemed, being found righteous and spotless before God's sight because he sees them through Jesus Christ and didn't bother whatsoever to apply the scriptures to their life. That's the difference. Their work was not of quality. They still go to heaven? Absolutely. Is it still going to be blissful? Absolutely. But notice what rewards really are when you look at it. Rewards are a reflection of the truth of God's word. Rewards are a reflection of not succumbing to unbelief. We show up in the kingdom, and since you were nice to me today, I'm going to be nice to you. And Tom has a whole heap of rewards there. Is it so that Tom can run around like Scrooge and kind of swim through his riches? Is that why? Casting crowns around, spinning them on his finger? Is that what he's doing there? No. It is a reflection 
of how true God's word is and the benefits that come from trusting him in your daily life. It all turns around giving glory to God. It's Tom's payment for the work he put in, but it reflects glory to God. Why? Because only God is true. So now he looks over at my pile. I got a couple of chalices and maybe a plastic ring that came out of a five-cent thing. I don't know. What does that reflect? It reflects a life that knew his master but didn't really know his master. Does that make sense to you? See, this is why justification has to stay without works. You believe in Christ, great. You're in the family. You are totally accepted by the Father. You have eternal life. It can never be taken from you. But now there's a question of responsibility. Will you live your life to glorify him? Will you respond to what the word has told you? There's a lot to be said about it. Can you suffer loss in heaven? You can. You say, wait a second, how in the world can you deal with that? Remember, we will be in glorified bodies. So the way that we will handle that is perfectly We will have no choice but to look at what the righteous judge judges and we'll say, Jesus, you're right. I could have trusted you this much and only trusted you this much. I could have glorified you so much more by simply putting your word into action. But instead, this is what I wanted to do. See, here's the amazing thing is, God has set every single person in this room, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he has set every single person up in this room to be nothing but successful at that judgment. He's given you everything you need. Do you like any spiritual blessing? No. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Do we have the roadmap of how to be obedient to the Lord, how we should adjust our lives accordingly? Absolutely we do. Do we have the indwelling Holy Spirit to help us because we are incapable of ourselves to accomplish this task? Yes, we do. He has done nothing but set us up for glory. He has done nothing but set us up for that end. How many people are confused or have questions? Go for it. Mm-hmm. So to me, I, it starts to go back to John 14 when it talks about keeping the commands. Mm-hmm. The Gentiles as a group didn't have commands. They didn't have the background of the Jewish people. Right, right. So it was kind of to keep these commands of Old Testament. But then now he's going forward from that and saying not only live the commands, but take them inside of you like the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. Yes, we're going to touch on that too. He's saying, is this kind of something for the times as far as the commands that they need? Why is this? Is because the church doesn't have the law. The law is good for one thing, it convicts us of sin. It's good for another thing because it shows us the righteous standards of God. But here's an interesting thing also. The commands that Christ gives, he repeats nine out of the ten commandments. Commanding the church, you should abide by these things. The one thing he doesn't repeat is the Sabbath. He doesn't do that. And why? Because we're on Sunday, not Saturday. That's the difference. We celebrate his resurrection by doing that. Everything else has been commanded and repeated. Should the commands of Christ be followed? Yeah. Are they good? They're always good. Is your life going to turn out for the better if you follow them? Notice I didn't say it's going to be easier. We know that's not true, right? But is it going to be better? 
Are you only living for this life here? Or are you living for the life to come? See, this is why we call aliens and strangers and sojourners, because we don't belong here. We have a place that's ready to receive us richly, if we will trust him. So now, if you look at your papers there, and I've given you some, some verses there, you can read this later about the idea of eternal life. Matthew 19, let's turn there. Here's what immediately everybody does. Matthew is a Jewish gospel. It's written to Jews. Has nothing to do with the church. Therefore, we shouldn't put much stock in it. The church really doesn't begin until the crucifixion of Jesus, and therefore, that's where we should start and move forward. Here's why I disagree with that. is because then you would have to conclude that the apostles and Jesus called them are not saved people. Does that make sense? In fact, it's these very apostles that become the seedbed for the brand new church that's going to pop up in Acts 2. So, the question we have to ask ourselves is who is talking and who are they talking to? If Jesus is talking to the disciples, then we better pay really close attention about whether or not we should be in on this or not and whether we should be paying attention to this or not. So, a very important thing to understand. Context always determines meaning. If you take a look at chapter 19, we're starting verse 16 here. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may, now pay attention to the language, obtain eternal life? Now stop. Is he asking a faith question or a works question? He's asking works. What can I accomplish that I can have eternal life? Look at verse 17. And he said to him, you big dummy, don't you know that eternal life is by faith alone? Is that what it says? No. See, some of you are starting to think the word hypocrite or, 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 or heretic in your mind right now. Stick with me. I love you. I'm not going to tell you something wrong, I promise. And he said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. But if you wish to, another phrase that's very important, enter into life. Now watch this. Keep the commandments. Wait a second. Keep the commandments. Is he talking about go to heaven when you die, eternal life? Or is he talking about richly rewarded, eternal life? He's talking about a rich reward here. He's not talking about lost people believing. The rich young ruler was not lost. A lot of people think that he was. He's not. Why? Because he asks a works question. Jesus gives him a works answer. Notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke him and say, don't you know that it's by faith alone in me? He doesn't say that. He gives him something to do. Now, here's what a lot of people have said. The reason why he gives him something to do and he quotes some things from the law is in order to demonstrate that he can't keep the law and therefore it's supposed to create this great need in him of the fact that he needs a savior. This parable does not go there at all. How do we know that? Context determines meaning. So important. So watch this. Verse 18 then he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder. Is it a good thing not to kill somebody? Yeah. Amen, right? You shall not commit adultery. Is that a good thing? Yes, yes. You shall not steal. Is that a good thing? Yes. You shall not bear false witness. Any liars in here? I'll go ahead and raise my hand. I, I am, I'm a liar, I'll tell you. 
Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All of these involving interpersonal relationships with one another. Notice that. How we live with one another. Look what it says. A young man said to him, all these things I have kept, while what am I still lacking? Now, used to, I used to look at this verse and I go, that guy is the biggest liar in scripture. He's kept all these things, but then I remembered They don't have Fox News and CNN taking up all their time. They're not spending time down at Dunkin' Donuts trying to achieve the calorie gain for the day. They're not getting all saturated with music and the internet and all this other entertainment garbage that keeps us from a life of devotedness and unwavering faithfulness to the Lord. And Jesus doesn't call him out for being a liar. Jews took faith seriously back then. And if he's a believer that comes from that Jewish heritage, he would have taken obedience seriously. So watch what happens here. Verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you wish to be, what's that word? Complete. If you have a little study Bible like mine, a little with the little notes and everything, it says over to the side, perfect. If you wish to be holy altogether. If you wish to got it going on is what it is in your life. If you wish to be without fault or defect in how you live, this is what he's telling him. Notice he's not talking about go to heaven when you die. He's talking about what it looks like to enter life richly. He says here, if you want to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now pause for a second. Could you do this? What do you think? Anybody here got a lot of possessions? Don't raise your hand. Nobody wants to know that. But can you imagine all the stuff that you hold dear, autographs that you have? Maybe you got an autographed baseball by somebody, something like that. Baseball bats, I don't know. Maybe you got an autographed picture of a movie star. Can you imagine selling all of your possessions then taking all, I mean, we're talking like the most unbelievable yard sale in the world because your goal isn't to keep any of it and the goal is not to give it to goodwill. That's not what Jesus commanded. Jesus commanded, sell it and everything you get, give it to the poor, give it to those who don't have. And then what's he tell them on top of that? Even more, you will have what? Say it loud, man. Treasures where? In heaven. Does everybody see this isn't talking about go to heaven when you die? This is talking about treasures in heaven. What will your entrance into life look like? Will it be rich or will it be lacking? Then what does he say? Come and do what? Follow me. Now, it didn't take too long looking at the disciples to sit there and think, I don't know if I want to hang out with those guys because they are rash. They're a little off the rocker. One's a zealot. The other guy's got a big mouth. James and John want to rain thunder down on people. I mean, they're weirdos, man. And Judas is just looking shady all the time, right? That was actually Judas's last name. Did you know that, Judas Shady? Okay, just making sure. (laughs) Making sure you're staying awake, praise God. Verse 22, but when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. He went away grieving. He went away grieving because he was now going to hell? No, that's not the situation. 
Because when you ask Jesus, Lord, what can I do to please you and obey you? He tells you. And when he tells you, it ends up being one big thing that we don't like, and that is sacrifice. It costs us something. Why? Because it brings greater glory to God. So he goes away grieving. Now, Jesus is going to talk about this. This is interesting. He uses it as an object lesson. Watch what he says. Verse 23, and Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. The word enter there is the idea of entering richly. It's the idea of having an abundance when you step into the kingdom of heaven. There's a difference between being in the kingdom of heaven and inheriting the kingdom of heaven. Does that make sense? Okay, so notice here. Again, I say to you, verse 24, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And he means enter richly. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? See, there it is. It means go to heaven when you die. No, then who can be saved? If rich people can't be saved from a worthless life, who can be? Think about it. I mean, wouldn't that be the conclusion that you would make they've got all the money they can do the most stuff is god worried about who has a lot of money and who doesn't no in fact do you realize this is interesting i heard this statistic yesterday it was from 1992 so it's probably way different now but the statistic at the time was is that about 80 to 90 percent of the giving in a church financially speaking is given by middle to lower class people people who just don't make as much money because it's not about how much is it it's about faithfulness is what it's about so notice this verse 25 when his disciples heard this they were very astonished and said he saved verse 26 and looking at them jesus said to them with people this is impossible but with god all things are possible now watch this verse 27 then peter said to him behold we've left everything and followed you what then will they be for us? And Jesus said, Peter, you stupid, selfish man. Don't you know something's wrong with you? You are so greedy. You are so mouthy. Does he do that? Does Jesus start looking at him like this, tapping his foot and making a whip of cords for Peter? Doesn't happen, does it? Think about Peter's question. Lord, if this is the case, and if the idea is forsaking and following you, Regardless of the cost, I'm assessing my current situation and I've left my fishing business and we're out here with you and we don't always have a place to stay and we're sometimes questioning when we're going to eat something until you bring it about and I'm not really for sure about how we're going to make it to the next stepping stone in life. So since we have left everything and we followed you, what happens with us, Lord, if that's the case? Look what he says. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, that means, of course, we understand that, the idea of being born again, but notice he uses this for a specific time period is how he uses this word. In the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, pause for just a second, when will Jesus sit on his glorious throne? In the millennial kingdom. That's when he will sit on it. He will return to earth, he will establish his throne in the city of David, and he will sit there literally, politically reigning from David's throne, just as it's promised, just as it's promised. So important to understand. So watch 
darkness. When he comes and he sits in his throne, look what he says about this. You also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 who followed him will have ruling and reigning positions because they left those things behind and they followed Christ. You have been guaranteed a position of reigning and judging in the kingdom. And notice what it says here. Verse 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake, there's your motivation. Why should I do this? Why should I leave this stuff? Why should I sell this stuff? Why should I give it up? Why should I give to the poor? Why should I follow Jesus? Why should I, I mean, we're, I'm giving, we're going to have an opportunity today to invest eternally. And that's because we are taking up an offering for this Dominican Republic mission trip. And in doing so, your money just doesn't go to pay for medications, pay to get plane tickets, pay to get whatever supplies they need. It goes to further the gospel amongst the people to reap eternal benefits in the future. Everything we do has some position in eternity. So now this is a good, good, good verse for us. Everyone who has left houses or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or farms for my name's sake, will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life and will, catch the word, inherit eternal life. When you believe in Jesus, do you have eternal life as a gift? Yes, but there is also an abundance of that life that is waiting for you to seize hold of as a possession that you will be rewarded with for your faithfulness here and now. Inheriting eternal life. Notice it's talking about future. Context determines the meaning. Do we have any questions before we move on to our next one? Because I want to show you another example. We all got this down? Should I ask how many people disagree? Are you convinced by the word? Okay. Hopefully Pastor Steve doesn't disagree. That's the only opinion I care about. So <laughs> let's turn over. Just kidding. Luke chapter 10. Turn with me to the gospel of Luke chapter 10. We're going to see something similar. I want you to pay attention to the language. Luke chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 25. Yeah, we're dealing with Jesus and the lawyer. Now, real quick, a lawyer is not like we think of a lawyer now, okay? They're not just trying to have the best argument, doesn't care what's really true. They're just trying to get their person off. That's not what we're dealing with here. Lawyer here was actually a scribe, someone who was thoroughly invested in knowing the law of God, okay? So anytime you see lawyer in the scriptures, think scribe immediately. Verse 25, and a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do, notice works, to inherit, there's that word again, eternal life. Now, immediately someone goes, ah, he put Jesus to the test, can't be saved. You agree with that? Putting Jesus to the test, can't be saved? Let me ask you a question. How many times do we put Jesus to the test every day? Right? And all God's people said, good googly moogly, right? 
We need to pray about that. So notice verse 26. And he said to him, here's Jesus's response. What is written in the law? How does it read to you? Now, let me give you some verses that you can write down here. We're not going to hit them because we don't have the time, but I want you to write it down and I want you to research them for your own benefit here for this verse. Psalm 119, 97 through 104. Psalm chapter 119, 97 through 104. You know what? Just for giggles, let's go for it. Psalm 119. Everybody likes to be adventurous, right? Here we go. Psalm 119. What verses did I give you? 97? 97. Now, if you know anything about Psalm 119, sorry, sometimes I speak in tongues. If you know anything about Psalm 119, you know that it's the longest psalm in the Bible. But watch what happens here. Verse 97. Oh, how I love your what? Law. Do you guys realize the law is not bad? The law is not bad. The law is not bad. It's the written perfection of God. It shows Israel how they can have fellowship with him. And when they fail, it includes sacrifices in order to restore the broken fellowship with their master. That's important. What's bad about the law is that no one can keep it. That's what's bad. The law's not bad. We're bad. See, that's the problem. So notice this. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I have observed your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way, that I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. For your precepts I get under from your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Does everybody see that the law is good? Notice that. Turn back to Luke ten. Verse twenty six. And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? Now notice that's an interesting question because this guy is well-versed in the law. He could probably recite it to you from memory, okay? And notice what it says, verse 27, and he answered, you shall, what's that word? Praise God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now that verse always stabs me in the heart. Because I wrote out a question next to it that I now have to look at every time I read this verse. And it says, how much do I love me? You know what? I love me a lot. Am I loving the Lord and my neighbor like I love me? Man, that's a good litmus test. Who said that? <laughs> Roxanne, was that you? <laughs> Somebody said probably not. <laughs> was it you? Was it you? Back there, Maxine. The mantle has now been removed. 
and placed anew on a fresh uh, believer. You're correct. I don't love the Lord like I love me, and I don't love my neighbor like I love me. I don't. Hopefully you don't either. That way I don't feel as bad about myself. (laughs) But is this the summation of the law that he gives? When a guy who knows the law inside and out had to sum it all together in a sentence, this is what he came up with. Now, look at Jesus' response. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Does that mean not cease to have breath? Eh, That's probably not necessarily what he's talking about, but what is he saying? If you do this, you'll live richly. If you do this, you will have an abundant life. You'll have a rich life. Now watch this. But wishing to justify himself, now don't play like Christians don't try to do that too. He said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor, right? And the reason why we sit here and we think about this is because this is exactly the question that I would have come up to Jesus, right? Gotta love my neighbor. Show me who. Because we want to pick and choose. Pick and choose. Oh, well, I mean, Ed? Yeah, I can love Ed. I like Ed. It's real easy to love Ed. Ed's got a beard. I got a beard. We got stuff in common. It's easy to love Ed. Love Steve? I love Steve. Why is that? We love going through the word. We love talking about things. I can love him. Love Tom? (sighs) You do have a beard. But I don't like it. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding. But we're talking about the people that we don't love. So Jesus says, you know what? Instead of just answering you flat out, or putting a big N stamped on everybody's forehead so you know who you need to love because that's your neighbor, right? How about Jesus paints us a really good picture and we'll see what happens. So Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, if you ever want to do some very interesting study, what did the road look like from Jerusalem to Jericho? Okay, it was probably like, Queens, New York, okay? Very interesting place where robbers hung out, were just waiting for people to ambush. It was real weird. Had some hill that you had to go up. You couldn't really see over the edge. That's where they would get you. It's a very interesting study. I won't go into it, but... And notice, he fell among robbers. And they stripped him, and they beat him. And they went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest... Now, this isn't a Catholic priest. Got to stay in the time. What kind of priest is this? It's a Jewish priest, okay? Which we're talking in particularly about Levites. Now watch this, a Levitical priest. He says here, by chance a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. How's that set with you? What's that? He didn't want to be defiled. He didn't want to be ceremoniously unclean. And so he saw the plague and he stepped over to the other side of the road and he continues upon his way. Let me ask you this. Do you think he looked back? Probably didn't. He probably looked over and said, hmm, that's unfortunate. Kept going. The guy's half dead. The guy's probably lying in a pool of his own blood. 
The guy probably doesn't have hardly any clothes on. And he's laying there. Probably groaning, but not moving. The priest, the man of God, keeps going. Verse 32, likewise, in the same way, a Levite also, someone from the tribe of Levi, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Nothing like following your religious leader's example, is there? But a Samaritan who was on a journey, going someplace, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt, what's the word? I don't know about you, but that's probably what we need to mark. Now, why is this a big deal? A priest passes by on the other side. A Levi passes by on the other side. But what's the deal with the Samaritan? Anybody know? They were considered what? Dogs. They were hated. They were half-breeds. Yes. They were Jews and Gentiles intermingled. It was a racial hatred that the Jews had for these people. See, it's amazing. The Jews had the oracles of God, the Old Testament, all the covenants, all these wonderful promises, and they were the most insane racists of their day. They hated Gentiles. In fact, some of the historical things that I've seen about it was, is quotes like, the only reason why God created Gentiles was so that there would be fresh wood for the fires of hell. That's how they felt about it. You think that's bad, you ought to see how the Jews thought about women. Right? Anybody know about that? Pretty rough. Pretty rough. Not readily accepted. Paul, what's up? Yes. The first time it appears that Gentiles will be blessed by the Jewish people is Genesis 9. Yes. As Noah is talking to his three sons. Yes. Cursing Canaan and saying that Japheth will live in the tents of Shem. Yes. Shem being the father of the Jewish people and Japheth being the father of all of us. Good gravy. That's exactly right. The first time that you see that God is going to give any inkling of blessing whatsoever to the Gentile people is actually all the way back in Genesis. So for the Jews to operate in this ignorance was inexcusable. Why? Because they had the revealed word of God. They just had to believe it. See, unbelief is their enemy. Let's finish this up real quick. I got five minutes. So notice a Samaritan, a half-breed, someone who was outcast and shunned by everybody. He's on a journey. He's going somewhere. Came upon him. When he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and he bandaged up his wounds and he poured oil and wine on them, which is a great expense. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii. Now, if you look there, I don't know if you have it in your Bible, but just to give you some kind of idea, one of those coins was equivalent to what you make in a day. He took two days' pay, and he paid it forward into the Super 8 motel of the first century and said, take care of this guy, and if he charges you anything else, let me know, and I'll take care of that bill as well. Bandaged him, medicated him, transported him, put him up for the night and more if need be, and entrusted him with hands to be cared for. Did this guy go above and out of his way to take care of this? Watch what else happens here. Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Here's the question Jesus asked. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor 
to the man who fell into the robber's hands, and he said, the one who showed what? Mercy toward him. And it's real simple, church. It's real simple. Because my application is the exact same as the end of this verse. Look what it says. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. When we talk about what it is to love people, to life in Christ, Christ is the only solution. He is the goal. He is the goal for the unbeliever when we tell them about faith in Christ. He is the goal for the believer when we talk about living for Christ. When we talk about that one needs eternal life as a free gift, and we talk about what can we do in order to inherit eternal life. How can we be accepted richly into the kingdom when the kingdom comes? This is a very, very, very pungent message for today because not a lot of people want to receive it, and yet you can't deny it. God has called his church to something. He has called us to good works. There have been enough Christians holding hateful picket signs, having hateful shirts on, treating each other like idiots on social media. Done. Enough of that. Jesus saved us for better. And he set us up for better. And he commands us to better. And he points us to better. And he will carry us to better if we will simply trust him. What does this church need to be about? It needs to be about unconditionally loving lost people to Christ and unconditionally loving saved people to greatness in the kingdom so that as a church, we can stand there worshiping Jesus with a whole pile of rich stuff that he wanted to throw onto us for our glory. No, all for his. That's what we need to be about. Good stewards of what he's given us now so that it will pay off huge in the future. One last verse. If you zipped up your Bible, shame on you. (laughs) Revelation, very last chapter. Revelation. I don't even know if my index back here is in alphabetical order. That's weird. Didn't look like it. Since I have a new Bible, I don't think I have it marked yet. Give me just a second. Verse 12, chapter 22 of Revelation, verse 12. Now this is him wrapping it up. This is the last thing that Jesus says to John. Anytime somebody's got a last something to say, they want you to know it. And they want you to know it in such a way as where they don't want you to forget it. And here's what he says, verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly. And my reward, my recompense, my paying you back for the work that you've done is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Jesus' promise, I am coming again, and when I do, that's when I will be paying you back for your faithfulness to me. Here's the question right now. Think, are you being faithful? Are you faithful to the Lord? It's not that we don't know. We got a lot of knowledge. Are we doing something with what we know? Does it make a difference in how you live? Let's pray. Father, I pray you save us from lackadaisical attitudes and hardened hearts and bitterness towards people and all of these things that the world tries to throw and and, and rile up and incite in us, Lord, to walk away 
from obeying your commandments. And I pray today, Father, we would realize that inheriting eternal life has the question of the quality of how we are living. Are we trusting you? Are we being faithful in loving our spouses? Are we being faithful in raising our kids? Are we being faithful in keeping you before everything in our lives? Are we being faithful in consulting your word and how we deal with others? Are we being faithful in our jobs, working as unto the Lord? Are we being faithful in our finances, as giving as unto the Lord? Father, we being good stewards of right now. Father, I pray that you impress upon our hearts the urgency of this, knowing that you will come again and you will reward. And there will be some who, after testing, will receive a rich entrance. And there will be some who will be saved, but will suffer loss. Father, you have given us life because our lives matter. So I pray, Father, we feel the weight of that now. And we pray it in Christ, our Savior's name. Amen.